Micah chapter 6. We've spent the last two weeks in the company of uh, great truths. We stood for a time in the light of God's revelation, having been in Micah 6. You never need to ask the question, what does God want from me? Because we now know exactly what God wants, even from all his revelation, what he favors most. Micah 6.8, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. We have read this great truth. We've discussed it, talked about how to implement it. It is written for us, and we need to take the time to take it to heart. When God says, this is what I want, he means it. So those are things to plant yourself on and meditate on and reflect on and apply. The people that Micah first told these words to didn't think that God meant them. It's just more religious talk to them, uh, maybe fanaticism. They probably called Micah a Jehovah freak. You know, before Jesus came, he couldn't call him a Jesus freak, but called him a Jehovah freak. Religion is okay in its place. You know, that's the whole attitude. But, but this whole thing about justice and love and walking humbly with God, that's not real world stuff, you know? Can't do business like that. Can't get ahead by being honest, loving your neighbor, living in prayer. That's crazy. That's what they thought. People still think that. It's too much to ask. The problem with that thinking, of course, is that God doesn't think it's crazy at all. And in the end of the day, it's his opinion that actually matters the most. He doesn't think it's too much to ask either. He thinks you can get ahead with integrity and love and humility. And even if you can't, he thinks it's better for you to be behind and have those things true about you than to be ahead. He thinks getting ahead isn't what matters the most. So God sees everything from the big picture point of view, the long view, the where today's decisions are going view, the eternal view. And as he communicates his view of things to us, we're supposed to accept it, whether we can see the end or not. That's what faith is all about, trusting God, the person, to fulfill his promises based on the word that he said. That's what faith is. He knows best and does best, even if we can't understand it, so we simply trust him. God knows our hearts, whether we trust him or not, and it is that trust that pleases him. Without faith, what does the Bible say? It's impossible to please God, right? That's the very essence of what he wants, to trust him. He might even make it hard just to see if we will. Micah's generation did not trust God. They did not have Faith. So God's clear statement of what he requires fell on deaf ears. They didn't want to hear, just as it often does today. People, human beings, have this incredible capacity for self-deception. We talked about that last time. And what you might call disconnect. You know how things don't quite join together? You meet the people like that all the time. They hold this idea and they hold this idea in the same head, but the two ideas are actually contradictory to each other. A lot of people do that. And they say, what, but, but, and they just do it. And you even point it out to them, they go, well, that's what I think. Anyway, maintaining outward religious forms 
is one kind of disconnect. Even passionately maintaining some sort of religion and then utterly disregarding the essence or the substance of your faith. That's disconnect. Passionate religionist and then not care about the main thing, the God thing. That's a disconnect. Well, we go to church, we want our children to get baptized, we, we go really ballistic and angry when somebody criticizes our faith, but we cheat on our spouse, we cheat our customers at the job, we indulge the flesh at will. That attitude is very common, and it's, it was common in Micah's day as well. They sacrificed to the Lord and other gods too. They followed some laws, flouted other laws. They were very religious, very corrupt. They forgot that God is just and good and holy, and he cannot be bought off with sacrifices. What does the Lord require? Do justice love kindness and to walk humbly with him the verses that follow Micah 6 8 describe what was really going on God requires and then he looks and sees what men do with what he says what does he see well in Micah's day he saw a lot of wickedness can he be bought off with sacrifices no it says he will call out which God does through the prophets verse 9 the voice of the Lord will call to the city. Now the city undoubtedly is Jerusalem. And before Micah relates God's words, he offers a bit of advice. He says, and it is sound wisdom to fear thy name. God calls. It is sound wisdom to fear his name. To give due respect and attention to the God who calls. The whole doom of the human race is that they do not fear God's name. And you know, in the Hebrew culture, name was who you were, stood for who you are. So when you're saying, he's talking about fearing God's name, he means God's character, all that he's revealed about himself. Men do not fear God as he is. They may have a superstitious fear of God as some sort of higher power to be appeased and, you know, softened with little gifts and tokens, but they don't fear God as a being of pure, holy, moral perfection. God is passionately moral, zealously good. He loves what is good, and he hates what is evil. And it's not that God cannot or will not forgive. We know he will forgive, but on what basis does he forgive? He forgives on the basis of the utter rejection and torture and misery of his own son on a cross. That's the basis of his forgiveness. That Jesus had to die so miserably pictures for us exactly how God feels about sin, about what it deserves. It depicts in unmistakable terms what sin deserves. So it is sound wisdom to know this about God and respect it fully as we are able. Now the last line of verse 9 begins the message that the Lord is calling out to the city. There's a little translation question here first. He says, if you've got a New American Standard Bible, it says, Hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time. Well, the word tribe can also be translated rod. It sounds like two totally different things, right? Well, it's just like in English. You might have words that are spelled exactly the same way and mean two totally different things. Um, so many translators favor the idea of rod. He's either speaking to the tribe whose appointed time depends entirely on the Lord's grace when their time's up, or he may be speaking to the rod, the thing that he's going to use to chastise them because God determines how 
and when judgment falls. And it makes sense either way. So the people, the nation, it's all in God's hand. So the Lord is asking questions about what's really going on in Jerusalem. Verse 10, Is there yet a man in the wicked house, along with treasures of wickedness, and a short measure that is cursed? It says, Are there houses with short measures? You know what that is? It's an inaccurate measuring device. Then why would somebody have an inaccurate measuring device? Well, what if you were measuring things that you were selling? Let's say you sold material by the yard, but your yardstick was only 33 inches long. So every time you made a sale, you, you, you saved yourself three inches worth of stuff. See? They got cheaper. That's a short measure. Are there individuals with treasures gained by deceit and intimidation? Yes. Verse 11, can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? You know what he means, scales that say you're getting a pound of meat, but you're only getting three quarters of a pound. You know when you go to the gas station, they have that little weights and measures sticker on the pumps? You know, you ever notice that? There's a reason for that. The state has to go around and inspect all the pumps. Why? So somebody doesn't set them to give you less gas than you're paying for, right? Because you could be getting three quarters of a gallon of gas even though the little thing is saying it's a full gallon. So they come in every once in a while, they just stop by and test it to make sure you're getting the right amount. You have to keep people accountable. Deceptive weights is the same idea. On a balance where you've got equal scales, you'd have little measured out weights and you'd put them on one side, right? And then whatever the product was you were buying, a pound of flour or something like that, you'd put it on the other side and it would weigh out properly. Well, what if your weight said it was a pound, but it was only half a pound? But that's a, look, that's a, that's a pound of flour. It doesn't look like a pound. That's, that's what it says. That's the weight. It says a pound. On it. See? The old trick, or, or if you lean on, you lean on the, the side with your thumb, that's an old trick people used to do in the old days. It's a way to cheat customers. That's what they're talking about. Well, everybody does things like that, don't they? I mean, that's just getting a little advantage. God hates that. Hates it. It's like rotting garbage to his senses. He said exactly what he thinks of false scales in the law of Moses. In Leviticus 19.35, it says, You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measurement of weight, or capacity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, that's a measurement, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt. He says, I'm God, you're not going to do that here. Deuteronomy 25, 13, it says, You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a full and just weight. You shall have a full and just measure that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. For everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination to the Lord your God. Abomination? Isn't that that word they use for like you know, really weird stuff? Yeah. God, God sees unjust business practices in exactly the same way that he sees gross perversions, child sacrifice, the most destructive and heinous sins. Just look up abomination in the Old Testament sometime. Just follow it through in the law, the things that he calls abominations. They're the most destructive, the most societally destructive, the most heinous, the most grotesque kinds of sins. 
And this is on that scale. Scale. It was common in Israel. Cheating people. It was common. And apparently they thought God could be bought off with some of the proceeds. Well, I'll cheat my customers, but then, you know, I'll give to the temple a certain amount. I can't do that. Of course, once that kind of behavior becomes commonplace amongst the populace, then the political system becomes totally corrupt. Political corruption, in fact, becomes assumed. And in situations without checks on power, then the political environment becomes violent. Verse 12, for the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. The rich and the powerful in Micah's day were only interested in their own wealth and power. That was it. Now, that is not always the way rich people behave. Never be as shallow as class warfare kind of people and point with too broad a brush stroke about people that have wealth because people that have wealth can be virtuous with it or they can be wicked with it. In times of great corruption, it's very easy for them to be wicked with it. There have been, there are, and there will still be men of power and influence who see all of their wealth as a stewardship from God, and they deal honestly, and they even care about those that work for them, and they're even generous. Job was a man like that. In fact, keep your finger here and back up right before Psalms is the book of Job. Let's turn back to chapter 31. One of the outstanding chapters in the Old Testament, by the way, describing the godly life in all the Bible, Job uh, pours out before God his conduct, and at each point covers all these different areas. He's asking God to condemn him if he fails to do what's right. And he covers a lot of different areas, but I just want to focus on the area of wealth and power. Uh, verse 5 of Job 31, he says, If I have walked with falsehood, and my foot has hastened after deceit, let him weigh me with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned from the way or my heart followed my eyes or if any spot has stuck to my hands, let me sow and another eat. Let my crops be uprooted. He's actually saying, God, if I have failed to be honorable in my dealings, take all my stuff away from me. And he could say that with integrity in prayer before God because he knew that he was a man of integrity in his business. Remember those words he says because when we get back to Micah 6 in a minute, Micah echoes those very ideas. On Job's servants, verse 13, if I have despised the claim of any male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises, when he calls me to account? What will I answer him? So when his slaves had a complaint, he listened. And he made sure they were treated fairly and justly. On the poor and the disadvantaged, verse 16, if I have kept the poor from their desire or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the orphan has not shared it, but from my youth he grew up with me as a father and from intimacy I guided her. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or that the needy had no covering, if his loins have not thanked me, and if he has not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw I had support in the gate, then let my shoulder fall from the socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. He says, if I have seen an orphan and I didn't take him home, 
Or if I've seen somebody that was poorly clothed or needed warmth and I didn't cut off the fleece of my own sheep and clothe them with that, he says, then God can tear my arms. Job was a godly man. He was a good man. And he can remember days there in verse 21 when sitting among the elders of his community, he could have taken advantage by his influence on the council. You know, the elders of the people of prominence in the community would come and sit in the gate, they would call it, and people would bring situations to them and they would help solve problems. And when Job was sitting in those environments, he had opportunities, specific opportunities he could remember where he could have taken advantage of someone, the poor, the orphan. And he says, I didn't do that. So he could confidently ask God to tear his arms off, which he did. And you should read Job 31. There's a lot of other issues he deals with here. Fidelity to his marriage, covenant with his eyes, he talks about. I don't know if we could make all those boasts, if you will, before the Lord, confidently asking him to examine them. So riches don't mean oppression automatically. It depends on the individual and position of wealth and influence. Was that a... IFCA regional meeting yesterday and I was talking with a young pastor it was the first time he'd come and he's the pastor of Irvine Community Church and, and then we were talking and I said are you part of the IFCA and he goes well we can't really join he says as a church he said because um, Irvine Community Church was founded by Irvine the guy that city was named after he built this church as a, as a, a place where there could be religious instruction and Sunday school provided free of charge to migrant workers that worked for him I think, well, that's an interesting gentleman. Be interesting to learn more about him. And his deal was they, he would always be a non-denominational church, so they can't be affiliated with anybody. That was, but they donated this land and the facility to a church if they would keep it non-denominational, which is wonderful. And uh, so these guys are faithfully ministering there. But what a man to do that and to consider the spiritual needs of his workers like that. Probably a lot of people didn't care beans about the migrant workers' spiritual condition. Make sure their kids had some school, some education. In Micah's day, there were not many Job's, not many Irvine's, not many men of integrity or courage to stand against the tide. And since corruption was commonplace, people gave in to it without thought or regret. But God, his view of that doesn't change. If the whole culture's corrupt, he still cares that you do the right thing. He didn't say, oh, I get it. Yeah, everybody's, yeah, go ahead. I get it. I understand. It's too hard to say no. He doesn't look at it that way. So take note, it is not only the powerful who lie. Um, he says, all the inhabitants sail the same sad course. Verse 12, the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies, the great and the small. It's a culture of wickedness. So now God says it will not be permitted to survive. Back to Micah chapter 6, verse 13. So I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. There's always a reckoning for sin. Much more so to those who know better. And these people all knew better. They knew better. The law was so clear. The penalty was clear. In fact, Deuteronomy tells in great detail what will happen if the nation rebels. Part of the prophetic warning that God gives in Deuteronomy 28, it reads like this. Deuteronomy 28, 37. It says, you shall become a horror a proverb. How would you like to be a proverb? Well, I might like to be a proverb. Not this kind. You should become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the peoples where the Lord will drive you. 
You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you shall gather in little, for locusts will consume it. You shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you shall neither drink the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm shall devour them. You shall have olive trees throughout your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil, for your olives shall drop off. Now listen to Micah's language, Micah 6.14. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied. And your vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove for safekeeping, but you will not preserve anything. And what you do preserve, I will give to the sword. You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but will not anoint yourself with oil. Same language. The prophets, you know, they don't really invent new stuff. They're simply affirming what's always been known since Moses. They're always calling the people back to the law of Moses. What Moses said would happen, Micah is saying 700 years after Moses, it's happening. This is the generation. We're going to see it. It's going to come upon them. The captivity, conquest, and bondage is about to fall upon them. The wicked always think the hammer isn't going to fall but it's about to fall. God does strike down. He does desolate. And all these ill-gotten gains can be taken away. And they will be. They will be, all of them. In verse 14, the wicked try to hide their stuff, you know, but they won't be able to hide it. Verse 15 lists a, a threefold description of their loss. They sow, they tread olives, they tread grapes, but they don't get anything from all that work. They sow, but they don't reap. They tread olives, so they can have oil to anoint their skin in that dry climate, but they won't be able to have it. They tread the grapes, but they won't enjoy the wine. You know who's going to be enjoying their wine? Babylonian! They're going to be drinking their wine and anointing themselves with their oil. So, what's all that ancient stuff say for today? Well, God judges sin, so don't be fooled. Over and over and over again, we see people who know better choose against God. But the problem with that is they're choosing against a holy God. A God who says he will not be mocked. And so there will be consequences. Consequences come to nations. Consequences come to individuals. It is sound wisdom to fear thy name, the prophet says. And he's right. There are not many sure things in life. Not the stock market, right? Not a sure thing. But you can bank on this. God is passionate about the moral choices made by human beings. Passionate about it. He must be. He must be. It's who He is. He, he made us, and He is in His very nature true and pure and good, perfectly so. And He's zealous for those things. So when a man cheats, when he defrauds, when he takes advantage of somebody else, Wrath is kindled. It starts burning and cooking and waiting for the day. And if you're a true Christian, of course, you know that. But because we drift sometimes, make sure you're on that narrow path Jesus talked about because there is a consequence for wickedness. Encourage one another to be holy for there is no happiness outside of holiness. None that lasts anyway. Love God's word and his commandments and statutes because they are given us for our good. That's 
a universal principle for all time. Micah's people didn't love God's word, so their religion didn't count for anything. In fact, look whose laws they really followed. Verse 16 of Micah chapter 6. The statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are observed. And in their devices you walk. Well, who's Omri and Ahab? King. Kings not of Judea, but kings of Israel, the northern kingdom that is about to be swept away by the Assyrians. May have already been by this time this prophecy. Kings of Israel, the northern kings who worshipped idols and oppressed people and persecuted God's prophets and they went their own way and rather than be horrified and grieved about what was happening up north, the Judeans followed in that way and did the same they just followed right along. That, it's the power of the pervading culture. And it's so easy just to go along with the way things are, even if it grieves and angers God. It's so easy to do that because it's everywhere. And 99% of the people you meet think that way. And it just kind of goes that way. And everybody does it. So you can't let that happen. You can't let that happen. John says in his epistle, the, the world is passing away. And the things of the world are passing away. And worldliness won't last. So we are supposed to live for what lasts. I think most people are lulled into sin rather than jump into it because the culture is just like, it's like a great river just moving in a direction, a direction away from God, by the way. And if you're just kind of swimming in a river and not giving a whole lot of thought about it, you're getting swept right down the tide, aren't you? It's a battle to go against the tide and go the other direction. And it's a very noticeable thing, a person that's working against the tide. Culture is like a tide sweeping. Well, look, when nearly everyone you know offers little sacrifices to Baal and the Asherim at social events, on special days, seasonally, in time of need, it just becomes commonplace. And it's easy to forget how much God grieves idolatry. That's what the people in Micah's day were looking at. Go over to somebody's house, and they're having a birthday party or whatever, and they offer a little sacrifice to the Asherim. And rather than say, man, what are you doing having an idol in your house? They just go along and they'd be quiet about it. And, uh, maybe they had a good crop that year, so, so you get an Asherim for your house too. It's the same with cheating or lying, or swearing, or fornication, or a host of other socially acceptable sins. Don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed, the Bible says. Be a living challenge to the way things are, not in a hostile way, but in a firm, confident, loving way, as Jesus would have it. Those who go with the tide are, are swept away. So you have to stand against the tide. By God's grace. Do it and you'll be noticed. Maybe not liked too much, but you'll be noticed. And you'll be a beacon of hope because there's all kinds of people going down the tide who are actually miserable. They want out of the river. They want, they want to escape it, but they don't know how. And when you're standing against it and you're actually moving in the other direction, they see that. And you're somebody they can latch on to. And you can help them find the way the other way. They need to see the way out. And for their end is as the end of Judea. Verse 16, Therefore I will give you up for destruction and your inhabitants for derision 
and you will bear the reproach of my people. Save people from that. Save people from that. Live the word and you can be a beacon of hope. Jesus said, you know, you don't have a lamp and hide it under a bushel. Shine. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that what? They may see your good work and pat you on the back. No, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the reason and that's the purpose of standing against the tide. Be a light. Rescue people from destruction. We think it's so cool when there's a raging river and somebody's lost in there and they're tumbling down and the firemen do all these crazy maneuvers and stretch themselves across on lines and ropes and stuff and reach down and rescue that person when it gets on the news and everything. That's exactly what God wants you to do with the people you know. Rescue them from the tide. So don't go swimming down the tide with them. Rescue them. Because everybody drowns at the end, see? That's the whole idea. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom that leads us to a knowledge of you. It is sound wisdom to fear the name of the Lord. And Father, we, we pray that you would grant us that wisdom. Give us a certain and sure knowledge of the right way to go and the courage to do it and the grace to be consistent and to be not forgetful. We thank you for being powerful and merciful and holy. Because it's exactly what we were designed for, to live for you in the right way. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.